I'd like to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, this morning we're looking at verses 7 through 12, and the title of our message is A Mindset for Suffering. A Mindset for Suffering. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. I'm going to go ahead and begin reading, though, in verse 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 says this. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God, not and not from ourselves, in every way afflicted, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. Let's pray. Father, we come to you again. We ask you, Lord, to help us to focus our hearts and minds on on, uh, your word. We're thankful for this day. We are celebrating today... um, the faithfulness of our pastor and his 55 years here at Grace Church, and we're grateful for the gift of leadership and teaching that you've blessed us with, and we thank you, Father, for the opportunity we have now to focus on what you would have us focus on, and that's your truth. Teach us that we might apply what we learn about you from your word to our lives, that your name would be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, a, a mindset for suffering. We, last time we were together, we ended our study uh, looking at verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 4. Let me just read that for you once again. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now, there's a lot going on in that verse. For starters, there's a contrast between what he's been speaking about prior to this, that uh, Moses' face had been veiled with the old covenant. Moses had glory, but it was veiled. And yet Christ's face shines forth because the glory of the new covenant is much greater than the glory of the old covenant. And the same God who said, let there be light, the creator God, is the God who has shown light in our hearts and allowed us to see the darkness that we're in and our desperate need for salvation. It's only because God has illuminated your heart to the truth that you are in darkness and in need of the knowledge of the glory of God. Now, when we come to this book of 2 Corinthians, we've said uh, repeatedly and we've noted each time that uh, Paul is responding to some who were against him. His critics were... uh, trying to undo some of the work that he had previously accomplished in Corinth. 
And some of his critics were obviously saying things like, well, if Paul is really preaching the light in such a dark world, then why, doesn't, uh, why don't more people see the light? Why don't more people turn and come to faith in Christ? And he answers that question back in verse 4 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light, they may not see the light of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And as we, we think about lightness and darkness, and we think about living in a dark world, and we think about Satan, the devil, the God of this age, who has blinded the minds of those who are perishing. Um, I'd like to hear from you just as you share with people that you go to Grace Church, that you come here to Grace Community Church, what are some of the responses you get from unbelievers? What, what, do, what do they say? Are they impressed? Yeah. It's a cult. Oh, they, they think it's cultish, okay? Yes. Oh, it's too big. All right, okay. Yes. Oh, they're not very inclusive. Yeah, that, 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 I have that written down here as well. The common response might be, you know, oh man, they're not, they're not inclusive. What else? These are impressions that unbelievers have. Yeah. Waste of time. What, what, why would you do that? I can't understand why you would ruin a perfectly good Sunday morning when you could be doing what you want to do, right? Yes. Oh, it's nice for you. Good for you. you oh, good for you. You go to, like you're, good for you. Yes. Yeah, I hear that. Like, not for me, but it's good for you. As we think about those responses, um, I think it, it's, it's, uh, it's important to note that we shouldn't expect unbelievers to really understand why we go to church. And I think there's a temptation for us, because we love it here, to almost present it as though, oh, it's a really cool thing to do. I think, I think actually living in Southern California doesn't help us, because Southern California is kind of known as a cool place. I mean, how many people moved to Southern California from out of state who are here, right? Yeah. And some of you, all of you, wanted to be cool. No, I'm... Um, <laughs> I mean, we've got the, the, the film industry. I mean, that's like cool. And we've got surfing. And, you know, you think about uh, people, you know, they, they have this impression of Californians. And, uh, and it's, it's difficult. Um, I think sometimes we are tempted to try and, because we, when people look down on us, for going to church, for worshiping Christ, for really loving being here. And they, and so we try to, you know, almost uh, justify it sometimes. I think we say things about church, and there's really nothing cool about church. Hymnals are not cool. They're just people are, you know, you still use hymnals? I mean, even Christians at other churches are like, hymnals, really? Um, yeah, Brooks Brothers suits, not cool. It's just, uh, it's, it's just, you know, we have guys on staff that get excited about it, but it's not cool. It's not like, wow, that's the coolest thing. Um, 
people here want to dress down, you know. Preaching the exclusivity of Christ is not cool in today's society. That Christ alone is that we are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. When we, when we think about the fact that um, we're preaching that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. People don't like to hear that. They say, well, that might be true for you, but that's not necessarily true for me. And what is truth, right? Or, you know, people, I think sometimes people look at Grace Church and they say, wow, look how big it is. And compared to a lot of churches, it's, it's big. Uh, it's not big, really, compared to the area that we're in. If you consider just the San Fernando Valley and the population that we have here, less than 1%, closer to half a percent of the population of the valley would attend here. Um, and if you look at a, a, a Midwestern town of, of 20,000 people, they might have a church of 200 people, and it would be much bigger in percentage-wise if you think of, of, of that. Just the community, especially when you think that our community comes from you know, a further reaching area than just the valley. But when you think about our church and why we're here and what the world looks at it, I think it's helpful because I think that the Apostle Paul faced similar challenges to, to a much greater degree because he was planting churches, and people couldn't understand why he was doing the, what he was doing. And they were saying he could be more successful if he changed it or did it a different way. Or, you know, and, and maybe if you changed the message, you would have more success. And of course, who, who, were the, who were Paul's main persecutors? Who were the ones that really gave him the most grief as he traveled around? Yeah, the Judaizers. The Judaizers were this gr uh, group of of Jewish believers who said they believed that Christ was the Messiah, but they believed still in the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Testament law. And so they believed in the dietary restrictions and in um, you know, the Sabbath days and, and different festivals and all that was entailed, the sacrificial system, all that was entailed in the Mosaic Covenant, they believed that Christians should actually integrate into Judaism. And they believed that that Christianity would have a much greater, uh, we would spread much more rapidly and have much a greater foundation if it just sort of came into the Jewish faith, which was already well established, and that the church would grow from there, and that the Gentiles just needed to become Jews first in order to be saved. And this was a problem for the Apostle Paul because it completely undid the gospel. It was a different gospel. It was a, go a gospel by works plus grace. And Paul combated this time and time again. He says in Galatians, if anyone, even an angel in heaven preaches you a different gospel, let him be accursed. Because the gospel is that Jesus Christ came to this earth as God in the flesh, lived a perfect life, never sinned. Uh, therefore, he never had to die because the wages of sin is death. Yet he allowed himself to be crucified as a substitute, as a sacrifice for those who would repent of their sins and turn and trust in him. And when you trust in him, you're trusting in his righteousness, in his work on the cross, not your own self-righteousness, but you're trusting that the work that he did on the cross, that gets taken out of 
his account and placed into your account, according to Romans chapter 4, and your sin, which you confess and you say, you repent of your sin and you say, I want to turn from my sin, and you, you give your life to Christ as your Lord and as your master, saying, thy will be done. Take my life and let it be. Whatever you want to do with it, I give it to you. I don't deserve to live because I'm a sinner, and I don't deserve to be in your presence because you're holy and I'm unholy. And the only thing I can do is cry and say, please cleanse me, wash me, forgive me, not based on anything that I have done, but based on the work that Christ has done. So please forgive me. I give my life to you completely, and I want you to be Lord and Master no matter what. And then, and then uh, Christ, uh, because of that faith, your sin is taken out of your account and placed into Christ's account where he pays for it fully on the cross so that when God looks at you, he sees you with the righteousness of Christ and you have been cleansed and you have been washed and you have been sanctified and you are being set apart and sanctified and becoming more and more like Christ as he works in your life. But when we think about um, how the lost world looks at the church and for Paul, one of the criticisms he also received was, hey, how come you have so much suffering? You know, really, Paul, I mean, if you would just change your message, you might suffer less because it's the Jews who are your main persecutors. And, it's, and if you just were more Jewish because you are a Jew and you just kept to the faith that you were born in and integrated Christianity into Judaism, then I think... Uh, you would suffer less. And really, is it a good idea to follow somebody who's suffering so much? I mean, it's probably a sign that God's chastening him and he's not doing so well. And, and we, that's, a, that's a very darkened view. That's a, very, that's a very natural, worldly, earthly view of things. We have the same view when we... When, you know how sometimes you have a friend who's a Christian, but he's also evangelistic about other things? He's always got some new diet or something he wants you to try. And I'm like, hey, you, uh, I'm on this all-vegetables diet. You should try it. It's like the most healthy thing. And let me give you 10 reasons why. And you, know, you, know, and you feel like, man, this guy's really pushing this. And then, or maybe then later he says to you, hey, I'm on this carnivore diet. It's all meat, and it's really great. And, and you, know, uh, you should try it. And let me, there's all these nutrients, and it's better. And, you know, and, and then he, you know, hey, have you, are you sleeping with tape on your mouth? Because mouth tapers are really, I mean, that's like so many health benefits, you know? You, you put the tape on your mouth. And it's natural to ask questions. I asked some questions about that. I looked them up this week, just mouth taping in particular. Um, and, uh, you know, it claims to lower your blood pressure, keep your throat moist, and decrease anxiety. Helps you to sleep better. But of course, it's true. Amen. Yeah, see some of these? Yeah. Yeah, these mouth tapers are all like, yes, yes. On the negative side, because I'm like, what are the dangers? What are the dangers? Yeah? Here's, here's a danger. If you vomit at night, you could die. All right? Even if it doesn't come out, I mean, it could go in your lungs. You could get pneumonia. There's, I mean, that alone is, you know... And everyone, both mouth tapers and non-mouth tapers, agree that you should not use duct tape. That you should use just a, a thin piece of tape with leaving your, the sides open just in case. I'm, it's just, it's interesting. I tried it once. I really did. Um, have you heard about this? Earthing. 
Earthing. Oh, yeah. The earthing evangelists haven't got to you yet? Yeah. Have you tried earthing? Earthing is really good. Listen to this. Um, earthing uh, can help your body absorb the earth's electrons, which provides health benefits, both physical and mental, end quote. I found that. Yeah, earthing. Earthing is this practice of wearing no shoes, going barefoot, but not like on carpet or, you know, it's not cement. No, nothing man-made. You have to be on the earth. You have to be like dirt or sand or grass, something earthy. That's earthing, or sometimes it's called grounding. And it's, uh, it's the same process that you, you ground your house with a rod, so you need to ground. And there's, uh, now this, all of the studies are not in yet, but it's supposed to... <laughs> No wonder my kids are so well-balanced, you know? Who would have thought? Africa, just running around, no shoes, just like they were earthing. Well, my point is that from a worldly perspective, anytime somebody tries to tell you how great something is, we naturally push back and say, well, what about this or what about that or what are the dangers? And so you see what's going on really unbelieving false teachers who say they believe in Christ, but they believe in a false gospel, one that, we're, that, that where you're saved by good works, and the good works for them was, were doing the, following the Mosaic Covenant. You're saved by good works plus grace, plus, yeah, we have Jesus, but we also have this. That's what, it's a different gospel. And so these, these, uh, these Judaizers were, were then saying, and by the way, I mean, just look at Paul and, you know, the, the fact that he suffers so much is a big red flag. Who wants to follow that kind of guy? And this is part, this is the backdrop of our passage as we approach it this morning. Because much of Paul's argument in verses 7 through 12 of 2 Corinthians 4 is that suffering for Christ is beneficial for believers. And we're going to look this morning at verses 7 through 12 of 2 Corinthians 4. We're going to find six key words that explain why suffering for Christ is beneficial. And these are six words that form a progression. One builds off the other, and it really is almost like a cycle because once you get all the way around, you're back at the beginning one again. So this is a progression or a cycle of words that I think will help us to understand why suffering is something we should not fear as believers when we are suffering for the sake of the gospel. And the first word that we look at is the word treasure. Take a look at verse 7. But we have this treasure. I love that Paul begins with the word treasure. When he speaks about this word, he, he's talking about the ministry, which he mentions in, in chapter 4, verse 1. This is the new covenant ministry as opposed to the Mosaic covenant. It's the gospel ministry. And he is saying that it is so much better than a ministry of condemnation, which, he, which is what he calls the Mosaic Covenant in, in chapter 3, verse 9, because the Mosaic Covenant was all about the law, and the law showed you that, that you, the law was impossible to keep. And so it showed you your need for a Savior, for something better than the law, because we're all sinners and we deserve his wrath. God, who is rich in mercy, has provided a way of salvation. But the law shows us that we're condemned. So it doesn't save us. 
And anybody who thinks that by their good works, somehow they could be good enough to go to heaven is deceived. They're still in darkness. The light has not shone on their hearts yet. But those who realize I have no way of redeeming myself unless I just repent and turn to Christ and, and trust in Jesus of the Bible to save me. God has revealed himself in a book. We are people of the book. We treasure this book. But the greatest treasure is Christ. Christ. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's the treasure. I love that that parable from Matthew 13 about the treasure, that parable that's in one verse, a whole parable, Matthew 13, verse 44. Listen to this. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. You can just picture it, can't you? I mean, in ancient times, people would take their treasure They would bury it in a field. Sometimes they would take something common, like a clay pot, put their treasure in it. They didn't have banks, and so they would take their, okay, and they'd measure out from this tree and that rock, and that's where our treasure is. Don't tell anybody this is our treasure. But in ancient times, there there were also other nations that attacked, and people were taken off into captivity, and they were killed, and entire households would be disrupted and moved or die, and the treasure would remain there. And so that, so that uh, never to be found. But this guy, we're not told whose field it was, by the way. That's not the point of it. I mean, let's just, for argument's sake, say it's government land, and he's out there renting it or using it, and he finds, hoeing the ground, tilling the ground, and he finds a clay pot, something in it. He, he looks in it. Okay, so now he buries it up, right? And he goes and sells everything he has to buy that field. And you could just imagine his friends right? They're like, are you sure? Like, that field doesn't seem to be worth what they're asking for. You're selling everything? You know, you shouldn't put all your eggs in one basket. Really? And that field? And the guy's sitting there doing, <laughs> if you only knew, if you only knew the treasure that is in that field. I mean, I can't tell you, because, but it's the, this is the greatest deal ever. I mean, this, this, this field's far so, it, 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 it just surpasses any dream I could ever have. That's how he feels about the field, because of the treasure. I, I love it that he starts with a treasure. We have this treasure. That alone should change our perspective. This morning, someone said to me, I saw him in the hallway, and they said, I said, hi. He goes, you hanging in there? I'm not going to embarrass him. Paulo, I don't want to embarrass you. So, but, but it was the way he said it. You hanging in there? I mean, what? Is this like a, a cat poster or something like that? Motivational or something like that? You, are you hanging in there? I mean, I looked at him and said, hanging in there? I've got a treasure. If you knew about the treasure, you wouldn't say, am I hanging in there? I've got a treasure. That alone should change your perspective on everything, even the way you greet people at church. How you doing, Paulo? Yeah, all right. (laughs) 
So the treasure is the first word. The second word in our progression of words that helps explain suffering is insignificance. Insignificance. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Verse 7. So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. It's clear from this verse that Paul wants the focus not to be on himself, that compared to the treasure, he is just a clay pot, an earthen vessel, something that is, that is just ordinary. There's nothing special about him. And this is one of the great things about Paul's defense is because they're obviously attacking him, saying, you're following this guy? He's not special. And, you know, and he says, yeah, I'm not special. It's not about me. I don't want you to look at me. I don't want you to think about me. I'm not valuable. In ancient times, earthen vessels or clay pots, they were common. They were not expensive. They were useful, but they weren't treasured. In antiquity, people used them for common things like storing water or taking out garbage or, or sometimes bearing valuables. So sometimes they would put something very valuable in it to transport it, or, but they didn't want it to look like, oh man, this thing is really precious. And most people would not be concerned if the clay pot was broken. Um, in fact, um, sometimes in, in Scripture... They used clay pots to break them. In Judges, when God defeated the Midianites, Gideon and his army all hid their torches under clay pitchers. And the whole idea, the 300 of them surrounding the Midianites, they, they made it look like they were bigger armies. They wanted to say that this is all God, not ourselves. But they took the, the pitchers off and they smashed them, made a noise. But no, nobody ever says, oh, what, the, what about the pitcher? Jeremiah 19, God instructed Jeremiah to buy an earthenware vessel and take it with him along with the leaders of the people to a valley where he would smash the vessel as an illustration that, hey, this, you know, he buys a clay pot, goes, purchases it, takes, takes the leaders of Judah out to a valley, and he says, I want to show you something. This clay pot, it's Judah. It's you guys. I want to show you what God's going to do with you. Wah! Smash. That's how prophets prophesied. Give a little picture to go along with it. So we don't think about those things. I, I, um, when we lived in, in Africa, uh, we would, uh, it wouldn't be uncommon to see my wife at the sink washing Ziploc baggies, you know, because we, they didn't, we didn't buy them there. We, we would have, uh, they were super expensive if they did import them. So when people would come, hey, what can we bring? Hey, can you bring some Ziploc baggies, you know? And then they would come and, oh, yeah, we'd use it and I would reuse it and reuse it. If it broke, okay, we'd throw it away. But now that we're living in the land of plenty, I haven't, you know, I don't, nobody in our house is washing Ziplocs, you know? You might even just have one cracker in there. You're like, oh, I'm done with this. Just throw it away. And clay pots would have been more valuable maybe than a Ziploc baggie, but it wasn't like once it was broken, we have to figure out how to recycle this. Or it was, it was just, okay, let's get another clay pot. And so um, when, we, when we look at 2 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul's point is really twofold. Firstly, the treasure is in the vessel, and the vessel is not the treasure. In other words, the gospel is what really matters, the messenger does not matter. 
He's just a clay pot. But secondly, what's amazing is that God's greatness is seen by the way that those who carry the message do not lose heart. Take a look at verse 7 again. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. The greatness was not that Paul was great, but that the gospel is great. Not from ourselves at the very end. Not that anyone would see greatness in Paul. He didn't want that as his goal. But he didn't, when people said, you are not great, he says, exactly. If anyone thinks that I'm powerful, my goal is to show you the surpassing greatness, the greatness which the, the word literally means to throw beyond. It has this idea of exceeding or to an extraordinary degree. Paul's goal was that the power which exceeds any greatness that one might expect would be seen in such a way that nobody could credit it to himself. They would say, this has to be of God. And for everyone to see that, it brings us really to the next word. Our third word is endurance. So we're going from treasure to insignificance to endurance. And we see this in verses 8 through 9. We see endurance with really four couplets. Each one communicates endurance. It says in verse 8, In every way afflicted, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. The word afflicted in verse 8 means hard-pressed. Clay pots are, aren't known for being able, aren't known for being able to withstand lots of pressure. When you think about, um, you know, the, the damage that can happen to a clay pot, drops, easily smashed. Amazingly, Christians are afflicted but not crushed. Clay pots, um, I, I was wondering how much pressure could a clay pot actually withhold, and I got way more information than I really wanted. Um, you ever heard of this book by Frank Kirkpatrick? The Effects and Size of Grog in Fire Clay Bodies. Grog is uh, pot sherds that are ground up into fine dust and then remixed with clay. And he was, wrote a whole book on the effects of doing that and the benefits of doing that for clay vessels. And the word that means breaking point is actually the modulus of rupture. And the modulus of rupture is determined by the force divided by the length and width and depth of the clay. I'm, I was learning way more than I should have. But um, somehow, you also have to factor in the type of clay uh, and the heat treatment. To be honest, I didn't understand much of the book. But um, on page 10, he said that the, the best test he had was a four-inch piece of clay which withstood 6,622 pounds per square inch of pressure. That's a lot more than I would have guessed. Because, I mean, I've broken clay pots before, and I don't think I put 6,000 pounds on them, you know. And so a lot of it has to do with the way it's formed and the size and all that. But you think about um, Paul's point in verse 8, is that though he is very weak, and has been in every way imaginable, been put under great pressure. Remarkably, he's not crushed. And he's using this as a testimony to the fact that it's not him. It's the treasure that he has. He's insignificant, but remarkably, somehow he endures. He is perplexed, he says in verse 8 towards the end. It means to be puzzled or to be at a loss, but not despairing. Despairing. 
that is to be without hope. It's actually a play on words here. He uses the word aporeo, but not ex aporeo. So he's perplexed, but not despairing. The word, he's at a loss, but not at a total loss. Actually, this verse can be confusing because it seems to contradict what he said earlier in the book of 2 Corinthians, because in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul said, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even to live. And so how can he say in chapter 1, verse 8, that he despaired to live, but in chapter 4, verse 8, says we were not despairing? It sounds like a contradiction, but the, the, the context clears it up, because in chapter 1, verse 8, he's talking about an event where a bunch of people were rioting against him, or he was in a situation where he thought he was going to die. And the key words there are to live, and he's talking about earthly life. He was in a situation where he thought his earthly life was going to be lost. It would be a total loss. He thought for sure he was going to die. But in chapter 4, verse 8, he's saying, though I am sometimes at a loss, I'm never at a total loss because he's thinking of his spiritual life. And even if I die, I live. So he's really not, the the contexts are different. And I could I could go more into that, but the infinitive to live is really key in chapter 1. In chapter 4, he's saying, we experience difficult times, but never without any hope. But in chapter 1, he says, the persecution was so great that day, we're not sure which day he's talking about. It could have been the day in Ephesus where the metal workers, the idol makers rioted against him, and he thought for sure he was dead. That's what he's trying to say. We thought for sure we were dead. You look at verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 4, it also talks about persecution. It says, persecuted but not forsaken. In other words, though people beat us for preaching Christ, we're never abandoned by Christ. And then he uses a boxing term at the end of verse 9, struck down but not destroyed. We get knocked down, but we never perish. The word perish or destroy is a common word in Scripture. You may recognize it from John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. John 10, 28, Jesus said, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Even in chapter uh, three or verse three, six verses earlier, chapter four, take a look at, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul writes, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, those who are being destroyed. He's talking about eternal destruction. But for Paul, even though he gets knocked down, he's never out. He's not out completely because he has life. He is not going to perish Paul's goal was to exalt Christ no matter what. And he did that by following this pattern that we've seen of the treasure that he had, how he viewed himself, which was insignificant compared to the treasure, and then how he endured. The fourth word that we see is suffering. Suffering. Take a look at verses 10a and 11a. We'll read verses 10 and 11. Verse 10 says, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. 
For we who live are constantly being delivered over for Je- to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. When you read these two verses, if you're like me, I think the first time you read them, you're like, I have to read those again. That's a little bit confusing. What is he trying to say here? Well, let's break it down. And let's just look at the beginning of each verse. I believe that these verses are a repetition one of the other. He's saying the same thing in verse 10 as he is in verse 11. And if we look at the first part of verse 10, we see that he's talking about suffering as well as in the first part of verse 11. Take a look at verse 10. He says, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus. He says something very similar in verse 11, for we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. One thing I want to notice is his use of all-inclusive language, because several times in this passage, he uses words like always and constantly in every way, which it's so funny when, 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 when you're arguing with someone or somebody says, you know, hey, you always do that. You say, hey, can you not use the word always, you know? Well, Paul, they're like saying, hey, you suffer a lot. He says, I always suffer. I'm constantly suffering almost hyperbolically, just go to the extreme. Sure, yeah, I suffer. I'm, I'm always suffering. The, even back in um, verse 8, he says, in every way, in every way you can imagine, I suffer. And it happens all the time. He says, it just doesn't seem to stop. Hits me time and time again. When he says in verse 10, we carry about in the body the dying of Jesus, And in verse 11, we who are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, he's saying the same thing, and that is, because I do what Christ would have me do, then I'm constantly constantly being treated as Christ would be treated. There's a principle here, and it's one that's not not only in this text. I, I, I... Think of this principle as the principle of abiding in Christ. I want to take you to a few other passages just to show you because I think this is key and it's helpful for us to get a a really good idea of what it means to abide in Christ. The word abide can mean to remain or to abide. It often is translated abiding, especially when it's used in the continuous tense. And that's significant because, and I like it, I appreciate that. Uh, If... um, you know, when you were younger and you went to the grocery store and you're shopping with your mom and you're a little kid and, and, and your mom forgets the milk, which is on the way back aisle, right? Because they want you to get through everything to get to the milk. So she says, she says to you, okay, we're in line. You stay here and I'm going to go get the milk. She doesn't mean stay here, by the way. I found this out. She doesn't mean stay here. Because stay here is like, oh, you, you want to go? You want to go? And then she comes back. She says, Why are there still a lot of people in front? Well, I've just been letting them go in front of me. Well, I didn't mean stay here. I meant like you carry on as though I'm with you so that when I come back, we're further ahead. That's abiding. Abiding is different than staying. Abiding is carrying on. And when, when Christ speaks about abiding in him, it's remaining in him and doing what he would have, would be doing if he were here. And so when you look at some passages... For example, John 15. Turn with me to John 15. John 
I'll go ahead and read verses 1 through 5, John 15. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine grower. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he cleans it, so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit from itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and in him the same, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Here Jesus pictures himself as a vine, and we are the branches coming off of that vine. We continue to remain in him or do what he would be doing, and we would produce fruit, the same kind of fruit that he would produce. Take a look at verse 9, still in the same chapter, John 15. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Skip down to verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one this than he lays down his life for his friends. He talks about great sacrifice, and Christ laid down his life for us, but we are to live sacrificially and carry on, abiding in that same kind of love. Skip over to me with, uh, to Acts chapter 5. We can move from Acts chapter 5, from John 15 to Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 5, I want to point out Remember in Acts chapter 5 Peter and the other apostles were arrested they were threatened um, and they were told not to preach the gospel anymore pick it up in verse 29 Peter and the apostles um, but Peter and the apostles answered and said we must obey God rather than men we can't stop preaching And verse 30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging on a tree. This is the one God God exalted to his right hand as leader and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God gave to those who obey him. Well, this really upset the leaders, but Gamaliel speaks up, and he gives some counsel, and he says, listen, if these guys are liars, this thing's going to fade away. If these guys are telling the truth, there's nothing we can do against it. So let's just let them go. So we see that they kind of followed his advice. It says, verse 40, so they followed his advice, and after calling the apostles in and beating them, they commanded them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they released them. So these guys were flogged for speaking in the name of Jesus, for preaching Christ. Verse 41, so they went on their way from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for the name. Do you see the principle of abiding? If Jesus were there, he would have continued to preach. And if they would have held Jesus and put him in prison, told him not to preach anymore, he says, I still have to preach, then they would have beaten Jesus. But because they were doing what Jesus was done and they were receiving the beating that Jesus would have gotten, they were They were joyful. They were rejoicing that they're receiving the same kind of treatment that Jesus would have received because they're abiding. This is that abiding principle. 1 John 2.6, just listen. You don't have to turn there. 1 John 2.6, 
The one who says he abides in him ought to himself walk in the same manner as he walked, that is, as Christ walked. You say you abide in Christ, walk like Christ. I'll read one more passage, and you can already turn back to 2 Corinthians 4. But the passage I'll read you is what Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verse 10. He says, now you followed my, te- now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch and at Iconium and Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all, out of them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Second Timothy three twelve. There is this teaching that if you live like Christ lived, you can expect to be treated as. Christ would be treated in that same situation. And and I think that's a principle of abiding in him. And though we don't have the word abiding in in our text, it, it certainly seems that the principle is there in verses 10 and 11. Look at them again. Paul says he's always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus. Because everywhere he goes, he does what Jesus would have him to do. And so they crucified Jesus, but they just want to keep on crucifying him. So they persecute Paul. Same thing I think he's saying at the beginning of verse 11. For we who live are constantly being delivered over. Same word, by the way, delivered over as in Matthew 17 when Jesus was delivered over into the hands of those who crucified him, Matthew 17, 22. We're constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. That's what I think he's talking about. So let's follow our progression of words. We've got four of them down. We've got two to go. First one is treasure. Then we have insignificance. Then we have endurance, which is hard to explain. How does someone so insignificant, how does a clay pot endure the pressure it is, it's receiving? And then we have suffering. And then we live to, the fifth key word is manifestation manifestation or manifest. Again, verses 10 and 11, but this time we're looking at the second part of verses 10 and 11. Take a look at them with me, the so that statements. Verse 10, so that the life of Jesus may be, sorry, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Verse 11, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Again, two clauses, identical, word for word, except for the very ending, verse 10, in our body, verse 11, in our mortal flesh. He's using that repetition to make his point clear. His his premise has been, we're committed to enduring suffering. This is what we want to do because enduring in Christ results in suffering. That's the dying or being delivered over to death in verse 11. And that suffering for Christ's sake results in a manifestation or other people seeing Christ. When I suffer for Christ and I endure, then people say, how does a clay pot endure all that pressure? Like That's way more pressure than a clay pot can endure, but he keeps on going. How is that possible? All this suffering, they see Christ. They see his, either he's a fool and he's crazy, or he has something I don't have. And they see Christ in the way that he survives and endures in suffering. They see the manifestation of Christ. The word 
manifestation there to, ma- to be manifested means to reveal, to make clear, to expose, to disclose. And this brings us to a sixth and final word in our progression, and that is life. Verse 12. It says, so death works in us, but life in you. What he's getting at here is that when people see Christ manifested and they see that light, they're now, they understand, they will live because once they see it, and they, uh, they attribute it to Christ, they will be so overwhelmed with their sin and their need to repent and follow Christ that they will live. So death works in us, but life in you. And notice he changes the ending. Verses 10, 11, and 12 all start the same. He's saying in verse 10, we suffer, the life of Jesus is manifested in us. Verse 11, we suffer, The life of Jesus is manifest in us. Verse 12, we suffer. The life of Jesus is manifest in you. It ends in life for you. That's why I endure suffering. That's what motivates me. You wonder why people should follow someone like me, someone so unimpressive, such a nobody, whose life is full of suffering. Here's why. Here's why. I have a treasure And this treasure, the God who created light, shone light in my heart to show me this treasure. And I have the treasure. But not only that, he has compared to this treasure, I am completely insignificant. So these things you're saying about me, you don't know the half of it. I'm, I'm much more insignificant than you think I am. Not only that, If I'm so insignificant, how is it that someone as weak as me can endure such great and constant suffering? I endure. I carry on taking the blows that Jesus would get if he were here. Because in the midst of my suffering, people have, they see Christ. They see him manifested. They see, they have no other explanation for me doing what I do except for that it must be Christ motivating me. And that manifestation of Christ for those who can see it is the light shining down into their hearts and they hear the words that he speaks because Paul was preaching the gospel. He was using Christ's words. He was not only living as Christ lived, but he was speaking the words that Christ spoke so that people could, their eyes of their hearts could be opened. They could, they could turn and have life. And the Corinthians knew that. They, they had life, so they had the treasure. And then the cycle repeats itself, and it should repeat itself, repeat itself with, with, the, with the Corinthians as well. Treasure, insignificance, endurance, suffering, manifestation, life, and that, that cycle should continue in our life. That's, that's the secret associated with suffering. That is when we talk about a mindset for suffering. This is the cycle that explains not only what Paul experienced or why he experienced so much suffering in his life, but it should motivate us to have a different viewpoint on suffering for his sake. We have time. We're going to get out early because I want you to enjoy everything that's out there. But questions, 
I didn't break so much for questions while we're going through. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a good question. So the question is, all right, so Paul was being stoned to the extent that they thought he was dead. And when the people who are trying to kill you think you're dead, that's a pretty good beating, right? So they leave him, but he survived, okay? That, that's, that's Lystra, Derby, Iconium. They're in his, one of his first missionary journey. So the question is, since we're not facing that same kind of persecution, how does this mindset really apply to us? And, and I think I would stretch that as well because I think we get wrapped up in suffering that we don't associate with the gospel. You hanging in there? Because I got a couple of young kids and man, it's a, it was a battle to get here, right? So I, I guess I would go back to this. I think, I think because Paul's mindset was on the treasure and that's where it's got to start, and he was motivated to actually, you know, share that treasure. That that was that infiltrated everything he did. And I think that uh, when you're suffering, I think it's a good time to ask, why, uh, why am I suffering? Because there are many causes for suffering. And we went over this actually when we just first started the book of 2 Corinthians. Um, you know, it, you may be suffering because of sin in your life that's unrepentant, and it's not the kind of thing you should point out in other people's life, but any time you're going through a time of suffering, you should be praying, Lord, show me, is there any sin you want me to deal with? Is there any wicked way in me? I want to see it. I want to deal with it because I know that they're, I'm blind to sin. I need other people to show me my sin. And so we, we think about that. There are many re- Just because you're suffering doesn't mean, wow, I must be like the Apostle Paul. But I think, conversely, I think that it should motivate us to be more bold. Because if the Apostle Paul was suffering, you know, if, if Christ suffered at a level of infinity, and Paul's up there often suffering at a level of seven, eight, nine, right? I mean, what's our suffering? That our relatives and friends think we're weird? That they think we're not cool? that we're embarrassed to tell them what we really love or invite them to church or tell them the truth about the gospel or confront them about their sin because we're afraid that they're going to think that we're holier than thou. That's such a low level. It's like a level two, maybe. So as we think about this cycle, I think we got to get back to that treasure to where it is, it, we're so overwhelmed. I've got a treasure and it's not just for me. I've got to tell the world about this treasure because this treasure is for all who will repent. There are fields with treasures for everyone. And so in, in a real sense, this should motivate us, I think, to be more evangelistic, not about dietary things, not about taping your mouth or, you know, earthing, although earthen vessels is earthing, right? Because we're earthen... Ve- no, I was trying to make a connection, but... I think, I think really we have to look at it that way. Um, and I, I, I do think that the more bold we are for the name of Christ, um, the more 
the more persecution we should expect, but also a different viewpoint that we do have on suffering. Paul was weak in many ways. You, re, you look at his letter to the Galatians, see with what large eyes or hands I, 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 letters I write this with, and you know he and then he also talks about exchanging. You, you, I wish you could give me. I mean, people think he was weak-eyed, hunchback, ugly, not a good speaker. I mean, there's all these caricatures of Paul based on all kinds of little tidbits from around Scripture. He wasn't the most eloquent guy, and I think sometimes. You know, we look at, well, why am I, uh, when I'm going through this, maybe it's a financial crisis or a physical ailment or a family situation or something like that. This is an opportunity for Christ to be manifested because he can be manifested in the way that you go through any suffering. Because when people say, well, how is it that you go through that with such an attitude? I have a treasure. I have a treasure. I think it all it goes back to that. Other questions? All right, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time together in your word. We're thankful, Father, for the good news of salvation. We pray for anyone who has heard this message today and they've been relying on themselves or their own good works. They haven't truly repented and turned and trusted in you alone as master. They haven't truly given their lives to you. They don't know what it's like to truly revel and rejoice in the joy of the treasure of the gospel, the treasure of Christ. And we pray that this day they would fall to their knees. They would turn and give their lives to you. We pray, Lord, that you would open the eyes of their heart, that you would shine the light inside of them to see their need for repentance and trust and forgiveness of sin. Father, for those of us who know you, may this be an encouragement to us not to be self-focused, but to be looking around us at people who are hurting, especially those who are in the body of Christ that we should love as Christ has loved us, according to John 15 and John 13. And also, Father, that we might look around us and see those who are living in darkness, that we might be a light unto them as a church, as individuals, by what we do and what we say. So we commit this to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.